Louis Arroyo, who was the Mario Rivera of the 1961 Yankees, he knew my father's friend Gene, who was with us from Puerto Rican baseball in the winter, because Gene was in the St. Louis Cardinals system, and so was Louis Arroyo when he was coming up. And he was trying to shake my hand, and the fence wasn't big enough to get a whole hand through. So Louis Arroyo said, put the kid over. Gene put the kid over. And he lifted me into Louis Arroyo's arms, and Whitey Ford was warming up with Berra. And I got to shake Hector Lopez, Johnny Blanchard's hand, and then they put me back over. I was seven. Hello and welcome once again to the No Name NYC podcast. My name is Eric Vetter. I, I want to welcome you and thank you for coming to spend some time with us. No Name is New York City's longest running comedy variety show, 28 years plus and counting. And this is our first foray into podcasting. We're hoping that you will enjoy meeting some of the people who've passed through our doors over the years. And today, uh, the voice you heard up front was none other than author Thomas Pryor. He was actually one of the first storytellers that we ever had on regularly on our comedy variety format. We were always very stand-up heavy, a little bit of music here, magician there. But when we first started getting a lot more storytelling into the mix, Tommy, along with Michelle Carlo and a few others, was one of the first people to come through and play with us. He's the author of a wonderful book called I Hate the Dallas Cowboys. It's a short story memoir about growing up in New York in the area known as Yorkville in the Upper East Side. He'd been published in the New York Times on many occasions, and his work has appeared in places such as Mr. Beller's Neighborhood. And uh, he also has a, a wonderful book of photography, photos around New York City taken while riding on his bike. And he's just a very interesting guy, and uh, we hope you'll enjoy meeting him and getting to know him a little bit later. Uh, we'll get to that shortly. Uh, and I have to tell you, Tommy was actually originally scheduled to be a guest much earlier on. He, we, we actually recorded... See, see, our producer, Gary Hardcastle, had this, what I think is a really awesome idea. We, we were initially trying to figure out where we're going to do the podcast, and we were looking to maybe get some place to sponsor us, a restaurant or something, let us use their space. And we kept running into the idea of, well, you know, there might be too much noise around. I'm sure you hear lots of noise right now. We're recording this intro at a basketball court in Washington Heights because uh, there are a few places that make me happier than basketball courts in Washington Heights. But, you know, we were concerned about ambient noise. We were concerned about piped-in music that these venues might have and the rights to the music and all that sort of stuff. And Gary had what I think is a brilliant idea. He said, you know, when we schedule to have conversations with guests, we could see if there's a place that they would like us to come to, um, perhaps some place that has some meaning to them. And we've done some of that with Michelle Carlo. We recorded at a picnic table in Prospect Park with Charles McBee. We recorded at Word Up Bookshop which is sponsor of our bonus content. And he, he always enjoyed the work and the shows that he's done there, and he thought that would be a cool place. And with Tommy Pryor, what we decided we wanted to do is, you know, he's 
born and raised in, in Yorkville. He's lived his whole life there, and it's almost like an additional character in many of his stories. So we thought, hey, what a great idea. Let's go to Carl Schurz Park, which is in that area. And it's a park, and, you know, he spent a lot of time there, and it's referenced in many of his stories. And we thought, great, let's do it. Then it wound up being like in the low 40s and windy and overcast. You know, we were all kind of gung-ho. So we just like, let's do this. Let's do this. And we did it. And we sat out in the increasingly cold air for a little over two hours. I can confess that Tommy and I each had a tall boy of an adult beverage. So please don't bust us and let the cops know that we did that because we're... We're really sorry for what we did. So we did this, and our feeling was, you know, no, it'll add some character, it'll add some atmosphere. Here's the thing. What we didn't know is that it was going to be windy and the wind was going to fuck with the mics. So it was actually a very good interview, but kind of goes, you know, Collins, what you think? A lot of that. So it really wasn't usable, and we felt bad. So we did reschedule. This time we went back to Tommy's apartment, actually. That was very cool, and we had a good time. So uh, lesson learned, don't try and be a hero and do recording outside in 40-degree windy weather, even if it seems like a neat idea. Uh, But we got it. We got it. And we're going to hear that conversation with Tommy in just a couple of minutes. But first, a word from our sponsor. Get away to Green Bay. That's right, the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast, located in beautiful Green Bay, Wisconsin. Now, I don't know if you've ever been at a bed and breakfast before, but if you have, you know, a lot of times the so-called breakfast is like, I don't know, an overripe orange or, you know, a couple of pieces of toast, maybe a strip of bacon if you get down there early enough. Breakfast is not usually a selling point for a lot of bed and breakfast. But that is not the case at the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast. Every morning, you will be greeted with a truly yummy homemade breakfast prepared by your innkeepers, Tom and Linda Stieber. Tom and Linda will welcome you to any of their five luxury accommodations, all of which have a private bath and some of which have their own jacuzzi. If you want to know what to do later on after you've had breakfast, well, ask Tom and Linda. They can steer you to anything cool that's happening in Green Bay. They can also make recommendations to you for any restaurants in town or anything that's going on that's worth checking out. So by all means, make your reservations today. For more information and reservations, go to www.astorhouse.com. That's A-S-T-O-R-H-O-U-S-E dot com. Escape to Green Bay today. Well, I have a yodeling pickle. It might just start yodeling. Leslie Goschow sent me a yodeling pickle. May I play the pickle? I'm not sure I should answer that without a lawyer present. Yes, go ahead. All right, hang on. It's right behind us. Play the yodeling pickle. Billy Daisy, Oleroji, 
So, so how does Leslie's out of her mind? I mean, she's. They, they, I, I bring her often into conversations about my life, just so I have a baseline of I'm not as nuts as my friend Leslie. So, how does Leslie Goshko come to be sending you a yodeling pickle? I think uh, Kyle, her husband, and Leslie, over the ten years that I know them. You know, writing gave me this, storytelling gave me this, a, a, a circle of friends that continues to open up and get wider. But I got to say, um, you, Leslie, Kyle, Joe Detmore, Jeff Rose, really super friends who have reached out for me when things health wise or whatever mm -hmm. haven't been great. And it's nice. It's It's nice to have. In New York, which can be overwhelming when you're down, to have friends. So let, let's talk about being a native New Yorker. And you, you take it, you, you know what? You and I are not only native New Yorkers, but we're also people who are very specific types of native New Yorkers. For example, Michelle Carlo, our, our dear friend and a, a past guest on the podcast, is as diehard a native New Yorker as you're going to find. But she's lived in four of the five boroughs of the city o over her time. You and I have basically remained true to the neighborhoods we grew up in. And I know for you, this neighborhood, Yorkville, is a character that runs throughout all your stories and your writing. What are your first memories of being in the area? Moving in when I was three years old, we were first at Woodside, where the, where the two railroads cross at 61st Street, mm -hmm. the, um, the seven crosses over the Long Island Railroad stop. And that was ironic. That that was exactly where my fighting parents should have lived, where two railroads are colliding virtually with each other. The reason we were there is my parents got married in 52. And after the Korean War, apartments got real tight in Yorkville. So they took a cousin's apartment there and uh, my brother was in my mother's stomach, and they moved to Flushing, very close to Shea Stadium, which wasn't there. And they finally got an apartment in uh, 1957. But my parents fought constantly, and my father, you know, there's nice drunks, and then there's not nice drunks, and he mm -hmm. wasn't a nice drunk. My Mother took Rory and I, my brother, to her parents two blocks away from where we are. And we lived with them for two years. My aunts found the apartment on 83rd Street, which was literally around the corner from this window. And my mother let my father back in the apartment. Then I was on 83rd Street, three years old. It was my brother's birthday when we moved in, June 20th, 1957. When we got up to the apartment, there were three or four baby pigeons on the fire escape in a nest. All the newspaper, and I remember that. I, I would say, oh, birds, birds, oh, they look great. Oh, birds, I love birds. Mm. And my mother said to my father, I'm taking Tommy and Rory for ice cream. 
And she took us for ice cream and rushed us back, and there were no birds. And I remember I didn't ask anything. Mm-hmm. I knew. Uh, you know, you, you're that young. When something disappears, it's not, like, it's not like a toy owned and we're attached to. This was something that I found very attractive. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I liked the idea that it's a new place and out the window there's little babies. And I don't know. It's just weird how I remember that memory with a couple of what I consider now adult thoughts about what just happened. I think it kind of embedded in me a mediator role with my parents that if I don't bring up the birds, I didn't say this, I didn't know it, but I think instinctively, don't bring it up and they're not going to fight. And I did that my whole time with my parents. Even, you know, when I moved out and would visit them. Actually, my mother died July 24th, uh, 24 years ago. And, and right. she was my age. And she already had dementia for seven years. You'd mentioned that she had that towards the end. I didn't know she had it for seven years. Yeah. Dementia she got when 61 started. Mm. She had infarct dementia strokes. Oh. It's like one room going off at a time in your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so uh, if you're not living with a person, you're not going to notice it. It's going to be gradual. So my father and I, because we saw her all the time. Rory was in California. I didn't see her. We were the only two people that people would say, no, nah, Patty's being Patty. And my mother was a funny person. I mean, really mm. funny. Speaking of pickles... My mother taught me a song, I, can't, I don't know how young, because I don't remember when I didn't know it. Mm. And the song was, my mother gave me a nickel to buy a pickle. I didn't buy a pickle. I bought some chewing gum. Choo, 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 how I love chewing gum. I'm crazy about that chewing gum. Choo, choo, chewing gum. And, you know, we would sing with Mario Lanza uh, <laughs> from, was it Minstrel Boy? Uh, drink, drink. Drink, da-da-da-da-da. Right, she right. would wear my father's hunting socks. He hunted once. And she would use it to gleam and, and shine the linoleum in the kitchen. She was very, very apartment proud. Uh-huh. And my father was already drawing, painting, doing things with clay, mm. considering building, but he didn't do it until... Um, Later on, the sm- uh, miniature houses. My mother used to say about my brother, I, and my father, because we walked around and us in the briefs, my father in boxes, shorts in the house. That was our in- indoor uniforms, T-shirt and underwear. And my mother would look at us and go, I, I don't have a man and two boys. I've got three farm animals, and they don't do chores. <laughs> you know? She always picked my father apart. He loved Sinatra, and he would play him all the time. And I would hear my mother, <laughs> thinking I was out of ear earshot, go, "Oh, it's old blue balls again." <laughs> and so, so mom did not share the same passion for Sinatra, I guess. She probably liked me, liked him, but was nauseated by his. He was on as much as. Um, uh, Led Zeppelin. What's the seven-minute song? Their first, <laughs> the one that is like a free bird starts slow and then just goes nuts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And that reflects my well, my age. I can't remember the song. I hate the song because it was on every friggin' hour mm-hmm. on on NEW and whatever else was going on after '67. Now, something I know about you is that you're a pop music aficionado and, and geek. Did you grow up in a household filled with a lot of music? I did, and I did in my father's mother's house because she always had 78 records she would play. And then in the late 60s, early 70s, she got, you know, Guy Lombardo tapes and and Kate Smith tapes and Ethel Merman tapes. And she had one of those eight keys toy pianos and she could play a mean um, roll out the barrels. <laughs> <laughs> and we would sing along. Because, you know, the words were underneath the color in the book that you could play with. You mentioned your father's artistic inclinations. What about you? I think um, that was one of the internal burners in me that I couldn't express. I I couldn't draw. Uh, I didn't realize till later. And did you want to? Oh, yeah, because my... My father's art's all over these walls, and they're they're good paintings. You know, they're oils. I don't like his watercolors, but his sketches were phenomenal. He used to sell them. He Mm. sold miniature houses at F.A.O. Schwartz and on those uh, antique stores near Hunter on Lexington on consignment. But I wanted to, you know, I loved my father. I looked up to him. He was a good athlete. Everybody said he was good with his hands when he was a teenager, et cetera, and could fight. And so I knew he'd protect me. We always played ball. I mean, we always played ball. We had, we loved sports and we got along about sports. Mm. We loved music, but he hated my music. He nearly knocked me down like, you know, whoa, whoa, blow the man down. We're looking at TV about 20, 20, 25 years ago, and Springsteen now has crossed over from being a rock and roll star to an iconic American and anti-war guy and um, seeing the country for what it is, Mm -hmm. very mixed, very, look where we are, and he could express it. My father said, you know, I like, I like Bruce Springsteen. And by this point, this guy was God to me. You know, I'd seen him 15 times, and I paid $1,000 for a second-row seat to see him on Broadway, and mm-hmm. it's the best money I ever spent. My father saying he liked Springsteen. It was great, and it was horrible. And it was horrible because there were elements of the early things I enjoyed that you would have liked, but you weren't listening. And I've always liked your stuff, but you've never given my stuff a chance. I can't draw. I don't speak English well. And it's the only language I'm hanging on to. And I can't paint. And he could fix anything. And I'm a technical idiot. So it was wonderful being a son and very hard to be a son. Because there was very few things except football. He was proud of me. He had a hangover every game I played and never missed the game. 
And he would get up six o'clock in the morning with me, get on the number six and go 24, 25 stops up to Pelham to Rice Stadium to watch our home games and Kingsbridge and that uh, field by um, Bronx Science. There's a football field right there. And we went to Brooklyn and went to Queens, but it was always public transportation because we didn't have a car. We never had a car. And I was in the bar and I was about eight. Mm-hmm. And my Uncle Mickey asked my father, Bob, I remember you driving us to Rockaway when I was a teenager. He was a little younger than my father. And my father said to Mickey, he goes, uh, license? He goes, I didn't want to hurt anybody. And that was his answer to why he didn't have a car, which meant he knew he was going to drink. That's a level of self-awareness that a lot of alcoholics don't have. Yeah, because Mickey's father, he wrapped himself around an L pole up in the Bronx coming home after drinking. So let's go back. As a kid, were you actively looking for something that was like your thing? You, you wanted to draw, but you couldn't draw, whatever. Were you searching for something in general? I was confused. I was confused because I wanted something and I, I, I desperately wanted it. But mm-hmm. I didn't know. But the thing that um, there were three, four households in the neighborhood besides friends and stuff. My apartment on 83rd, my two grandparents on York Avenue, and then my Aunt Joan on 85th Street, who is the funniest person I've ever met in my life. And Leslie is a close second and my mother's mm-hmm. third. And the thing that was going on that I didn't realize was from the time I was five, six, I was a bar rag at closing time for listening. I just soaked it all up. I would sit with the girls on 85th Street and my mother, two aunts, and her mother, my grandmother, and I would see what a coven of four women yapping all day would be like. And for some reason, I never participated, but I enjoyed it. There was a lot of love coming from them to me. So it was okay to just sit there and get into it. Then I had my bar life with my father. We would play Spaulding on 85th Street, New York (laughs) Avenue. And I remember making believe I was Roger Maris. For some reason, he was in left field in Fenway. And my father was teaching me how to play a carome off the wall. Uh Am I saying that right? Carome? C-A-R-O. Uh, Carom, I think. Carom. And that, you would have to have the green monster. So I was learning to play the green monster, and you, I threw out Yastrzemski, who was a rookie in 61, uh, at second base. And my father, I remember the look he gave me, and I realized, and I wasn't that good in, in baseball, but I made a perfect throw. And the look on his face was pride. And I remember walking into the bar and coming out of a day like this to the AC mm-hmm. and the chill and your, your hair on your arms and your neck goes up and it feels good. And we would go over to the bar and Jack with the Irish accent, the owner say, hi, Bob, hi, Tommy. And I would jump on one of the stools that spinned and my father would get on another one and Jack without asking, would bring my father a short beer, 
seven-ounce glass and bring me a Coke with a maraschino cherry in it. Oh, man. That's and I best. always had to have the cherry, and I hated cherries. <laughs> I was doing what people in the bar did until they were 18. I could be around the beer. I could smell it. I liked the smell, but I didn't like the taste because every kid sneaks a sip. I didn't like beer. Mm-hmm. Never had a drink until I was 15. I have to tell you, I can kind of, in a way, relate to what you're talking about. My father, with a different kind of alcoholic, he was actually a very uh, mild-mannered man in general, and probably more so after he consumed a few, which was frequently. Um, We are both of a special class of person, I think, that spent more time in bars as small children than small children are meant to be spending. It's time with your father, but it's not really good time with your father. And yet you can kind of cherish some of that, too, in a weird way. Absolutely, because I learned street sense in that bar. If you live in any urban area, and I think especially New York City, you got to know how to walk around off your block. Because as an example of what the early 60s were like, if I got something in my eye... They're doing macadam. They were, you know, working on a block and cinders would come up. I had something in my eye. I wouldn't go home. I would go to the drugstore. And the pharmacist would take me into the back. And, you know, he would get an eye wash and he would find what was in my eye. I mean, this was like part of what they did back then. So... Children and wives in bars in the early 60s, there were bars where the family was always welcome. And there Mm. were bars where they prefer, you know, the old dinosaurs, you know, where they go to die, the old alcoholics that (laughs) don't want to communicate much with anybody. My father said, he goes, that's that's where the old guys go. And you'd look in and you'd see (laughs) haggard guys just like bent over their short beers. And maybe there'd be two guys arguing with each other from two ends of the bar with about three people in the middle. You know, they were like two guys in guinea t-shirts with their arms going, but nobody's punching each other. They're, you know, fake fight. And when I was in the bar, like I was with uh, my mother, with her sisters and my grandmother, I just listened. I didn't open my mouth. I, I knew I couldn't compete with the jokes and they watched their obscenities around me. I don't remember hearing fuck in the bar. If you wanted to get kicked out of Catholic school, one fuck could <laughs> well, do Cat- it. I have no experience with Catholic school. <laughs> I'm imagining that was pretty much bereft of any of George Collins' seven words. If you said suck, that would be like a, a master's ring to your head. A full punch, not a little tap. Like starting from here and, and whacking you right above your ear. Let me ask you something, because I had no experience with Catholic schools, <laughs> all right? Some of the stories I've heard of Catholic schools, it sounds like there was as much, if not more, physical violence going on from the adults in Catholic schools as there was in some of these bars. Do you remember my book release at Barnes & Noble? I'm looking out, and I don't know they're coming, and I see Brother Brendan from LaSalle Academy and Pat Cullinan, a lay teacher, who saved my summer of 1970 by not failing me in geometry when I 
thoroughly, thoroughly deserved it. I would have went to summer school. And Pat Cullinan and Brother Brendan beat the shit out of me. Brother Brendan was 6'2", and he would have a frown, and then if he started smiling, you held your head because he would beat you so bad. He was having fun. I mean, he was having oh, fun. Geez. It was like a Christopher Walken transformation. And Pat Cullinan, he would just, he'd hit me. Whether I didn't know a corollary or not, he would hit me for like, it's Tuesday. I hit prior. Anytime I got hit, I probably did five other things. I deserved it and didn't get caught. Those two guys became friends. And I got hit. I didn't become friends with, well, I kind of became friends with Sister Mercedes, my eighth grade teacher. But she hit me. Sister Beatrice, who was lovely, a saint, but she whacked me in the head and I fell out of my desk. First grade. I mean, a six-year-old. Maybe I was seven if it was spring. It's like, and she's one of the good ones. So wow. you can imagine how kinetic I was. <laughs> Man. I was very kinetic. So you're going through these years. You're getting the shit beat out of you at Catholic school. You're in bars with your dad. And you're searching for your thing, right? Right. And my father could tell every joke on earth. And I can't tell one joke. I don't remember jokes. Even when I had a good memory. And my grandmother was a storyteller. Superb. She had two, 3,000 black and white photographs, and I would bust her nuts to make her tell me, who's that, who's that, who's this, mm. where is this? And we would go through them, and they were in a hassock that the top came off, and all the photos were just pushed in there. <laughs> she, had, she saved all these photos, put dates on these photos, and then mm. just shoved them in. My father was a great storyteller. My mother was a good storyteller, so, look, not as good as my father. And I'm not that good um, imagination to make this shit up. It, it had to come and furnish rooms in my head that weren't being properly used, but that I, I hung on to this. And, you know, you started with music, Eric, and mm -hmm. I think that might be our first mutual love that we shared with each other. Oh, yeah. After we met, and it became quick friendship because of Bill and all the other music we love, and that, that uh, your sister's the same age as I am, so you knew music when I was a kid, the 45s, yeah. even Did though I, you're 10 years younger. I could say I inherited, I could say I borrowed, I could be more truthful and say stole a number of her records uh, from growing up. But yeah, there is a Jeez, link there. I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. Now, if you went through the LPs that Gary's left and you looked at the labels, you'd see Tommy crushed out, Rory. Then you'd see a piece of tape over oh. Rory, Tommy. <laughs> so the music was always important. I started buying records two years before I had a turntable and my father wouldn't let me use his RCA Victroller. The only time I got to play my records is when my mother was mad at my father and he went out. She would say, go get your records, play anything <laughs> you want. And if she was really mad at him, she would say to Rory and I, let's have a contest. Let's see who could turn the TV tuner the fastest from 2 to 13. Because that would break the tuner. 
<laughs> my father would come home and the tune, you know, the station uh, tuner would be flying because it was stripped and he'd have to fix it. We'd all play dumb. We always ended up in the middle of their fights. Uh, she was more of the get even type. Mm -hmm. He was more doing something to make the other one mad. The only thing that made my father mad was she was with her family too much. And she was with her family enough, I would be mad at her too. But I love being around my grandmother and two aunts. Can you imagine my father being in a bar from 12 to eight at night or later? Caddy corner from his father-in-law sitting on a stoop. That's and they hated each other. And I never rough. knew why until about 12 years ago. It was Mickey, Mickey's funeral. And my uncle George came up to me and we're both looking at Mickey dead. And he goes, you remember when your father got hit in the head with the lug wrench by Pop? And I look at him like, huh? And Pop is my mother's father. My father had a load on, went across the street and tried to get my mother and my brother and me out of the house. And my grandfather went and got a lug wrench and hit my father in the head, who went around the corner with a head injury to Mesmercordia Hospital on 86th Street. An hour later, my father comes back with the cops and they arrest my grandfather. And now I'm, I'm watching this and I hear my mother go, good, about my father. She's unhappy that they were arresting her father. He was protecting us. By this point, he already had pulmonary stuff, beginning emphysema. And the cops relented and let him go. And my father with a bandage that looked like he was in the Revolutionary War with a flute on his head, went home. That night, my grandfather made a call up to East Harlem where he grew up. And that night, I remember in their kitchen, my grandparents' kitchen, we're all sleeping there, was a man I didn't know sitting there drinking tea or coffee with a gun on the table. And my grandfather, I called him in case my father came back. Then... I can remember 20, 30 days where I was in a good mood. I was with my grandparents, my aunts, my mother. And if my father walked into the room, the air went out of it. And when the air went out of the room, I got protective of my father because I could see he was hurt but angry. They were all very cautious around my father. So... I never could really enjoy time with my whole family together. You know, and he fought with his mother, so they didn't talk nice to each other. If we were in the living room, my grandmother, Brody, the one I lived with, my mother got sick. She'd look in the refrigerator. You'd hear it open. You couldn't see it because we're sitting in this small living room. And she'd go, Bob, Rory, Tom, Tom, Rory, Tom. And she's calling us because she wants us to go get her toolbox, her pocketbook that weighs 15 pounds, because she wants to give us money to go to the store because something in the refrigerator that should be there isn't there. And Rory and my father and I would be pushing each other back towards the kitchen 
trying to be the first person she would see through the rooms and then nail to go to the store. <laughs> I say, this is fun. This is like my father's a kid because right. he's pushing us like we're pushing him. <laughs> and it, how many times you got a chance to push your father away? But it, she would usually get my father because he was six feet. And we were kids. Mm-hmm. And she'd see his head first. He had a big head. She'd see, Bob, you see his head go down. And we would be gleeful. We'd be so happy. She's going to make him go to this store. She's going to make him do something that my mother can't do, my brother can't do, that I can't do. Tell him to do something. So he couldn't bark an order at his mother. My grandmother was, she wasn't a matriarch. She was a patriarch. There was no man who didn't give her respect out of fear or out of love. So... It sounds to me like you're hearing lots of interesting and different types of conversations from lots of interesting and different types of people. Was there any conscious thought to doing something with these stories? Are you just absorbing? Were you enjoying that at least? One huge thing was my grandmother with the photos because I was connecting a visual thing with my grandmother's voice telling me with great reluctance because she used to tell me to shut up a lot. She would do that, but the most influential thing and something that, you know, 60 years later, I realized, um, I'll tell you, this weather reminds me that my father would get so aggravated with the heat, we didn't have an air conditioner. We were on the fourth floor around the corner. He had a lot of extension cord. He always had a lot of stuff to fix stuff. And, And when it was hot like this at twilight, he would put extension cords outside. He would walk them up to the roof, and then he would plug in in the apartment one of the extension cords, and then we would start bringing up stuff. We'd bring up all of the TV dinner trays, so we'd have three trays or a card table. We brought up my mother's favorite lamp, and she yelled at him from the fourth floor, fifth floor to the roof, you son of a bitch, bring my lamp back. Because he wanted light, because he was going to draw, and we could draw if we wanted. My brother could draw. He was an artist. Or we could read. And I got photographs of us reading on first grade books on the roof. I got a photograph of my brother on on a swing that my father made uh, on the clothesline. Because right next door, there was a pigeon coops. The guy had pigeons. As the twilight would go down, and I wouldn't start asking him until this happened, the shadows started coming down as the sun about 8.30, and then it would be dark up there. And Rory and I were in the dark. My father was, you know, barely lit. I could see half of them, but I couldn't see half of them. I'd start asking him. Dad, tell me about how many jobs Allie had. And my father had a friend, Allie Colbert, and I loved him. He was one of the guys who was with us in the bleachers when I got put into the bullpen with Whitey Ford, Yoga Berra, Johnny Blanchard, Hector Lopez, and met these guys. Because uh, Louis Arroyo, who was the Mario Rivera of the 1961 Yankees, he knew my father's friend, Gene, who was with us from Puerto Rican baseball in the winter because Gene was in the St. Louis Cardinals system and so was Louis Arroyo when he was coming up. 
and he was trying to shake my hand, and the fence wasn't big enough to get a whole hand through. So Louis Arroyo said, put the kid over. Gene put the kid over. And he lifted me into Louis Arroyo's arms, and Whitey Ford was warming up with Berra. And I got to shake Hector Lopez, Johnny Blanchard's hand, and then they put me back over. I was seven. Oh, so you, you must have been in heaven. I mean, you know. It was right before the All-Star break. Whitey Ford was 10-0. Mantle hits a home run in the game. I was in heaven? You know, it, it was all downhill after that. That, <laughs> that was as literally in my life, you know, as a sports fan. And I went well, to you the, peaked early. I went to the Giants for a Super Bowl in Pasadena. And that was a close second, but it wasn't as good as seven years old Man, on yeah. River Avenue with the L behind the wall and all that green grass. And it looked like the biggest place on earth, right? When you're eye level with it, little little angle in the bullpen. So the guy gets his nine inches. Actually, actually having physical contact with your baseball cards. So I would ask him about Allie Corbett and he would tell me every job over 70 jobs that Allie had in his life. Half he got fired, half he quit, half he forgot he had. And they were all funny, because Allie was hysterical. And my father would talk about the Navy and the Merchant Marines. And he would tell me about neighborhood guys and who was nuts. He told me that on 80th Street between York and First Avenue, there was a circus in 1938. And when the circus left, they left four families, and they're still there. That's where the nuts lived, in the neighborhood, on that block. So I really believed that they were part of a circus group back in the 20s and 30s, and that these you know, psychotic people were left in our neighborhood. But when my father was a kid, he could tell me stories about the orphanage on York Avenue that was taken down at the end of the 30s. And there were orphanage from 88th Street. There was Jewish orphanage on 88th Street in New York. And then from 89th on was two orphanages. And they went to the river. If you went down York Avenue and got on the FDR, the property on the right side to the river was the orphanage. So the last block on East End Avenue, which now goes to 90th Street, was 89th Street. And all the other property was the backyard for the big orphanages. One of the orphanages was for German orphan boys. And the other one was for incorrigible girls who were arrested and had choice for going to the prison downtown, the tombs, or to go here and become ladies. And some were as young as 10. Most were teenagers, mm -hmm. but most of them were doing prostitution downtown. Then on 2nd Avenue, between 90th and 94th Street, you had about 2,000 guys at least working in the breweries. So now you got these girls who are incorrigible, formerly doing prostitution, which was a very common thing for destitute and very poor families, that the mother was taking money for sex because she had no money and there was no father and or he was a derelict. So... How does Yorkville develop? Well, you got all the incorrigible girls, you got the German boy orphans, and you got everybody over at the brewery, which hires half the neighborhood. So my father had a lot of stories. 
with rich characters. There were girls that married guys from the brewery and mm -hmm. were girls that married guys from the orphanage. Makes sense to me, but it also developed probably more nut jobs per block than any neighborhood in New York. Right? Well, that's informing the title of your blog, Yorkville from Stoops to Nuts. Absolutely. Have you ever written about these kinds of stories that you heard growing up? Yes, because in my memoir, also on the blog, I've written about stories that don't involve me that were background. In my book, I go back to 1896, because mm. that's when my grandmother's mother and father land on Avenue A and 75th Street. I've had family on York Avenue since 1896, so 126 years. My father knew stories from my grandmother and his father. And his father committed suicide when he was 11. So my father, who had a good memory, I think because your father dies at 11, you probably remember a lot more if you, if you got a memory for remembering family well, stuff. But I was very insecure about telling stories and making people laugh. I mean, until my voice changed, I had a good voice. So I was in a choir in school, and I was in a choir in school to be close to the girls. There was only two boys and about 15, 16 girls. So how do you get from being someone who's just surrounded by interesting people and people with stories and stories with history, how do you get from just absorbing that to actually putting it out into the world for others to hear? You start with either a pencil and then 19 cents Bic pen, it's 40-yard dashes. You're bored and you write a sentence or two, and you, you're making yourself laugh. Or you're passing notes in school, or you're taking typing and completely missing. Touch typing is much better than the pecking I'm doing and writing FU stories to the guy across the way in my class and making each other laugh, or fake sports stories about hockey or about baseball. And when you're doing these 40-yard dashes, which I did, I was still making cards for people I love, meaning on Father's Day, Mother's Day, mm -hmm. when I got my first girlfriend at 16, my grandmothers, I always made cards for them. And I would ruin life and look magazines by cutting out pictures of celebrities before my parents read the book, uh, read the, the weekly magazines. Right. And they... Like, don't cut it until we look at it. We'll tell you when we look at it, please. And I, it was compulsive. And I made a card for my father that it was DiMaggio, his favorite ball player of all time in Sinatra. And there was messages that were private. I can't say it. It was very, very private. To my father from DiMaggio and, and Sinatra about what a great father that my father was. Mm. And, and that Tommy told them. And I would, I would, I called my mother Uncle Mommy, and she goes, "Why the hell are you call me Uncle Mommy?" And I go, "Because she's the best, best uncle I ever had." My mother and I hit it off and could click so well that she either didn't want to continue with that line of conversation, mm -hmm. or I got you. That made me laugh. So it was either she knew what I said and she was gonna go with it, or she knew what I said and would walk away shaking her head like, you know, I got to look for the adoption papers because <laughs> this kid ain't mine. And that led, I guess, girlfriend, school. I write about something and I put something personal in the middle of an essay 
on um, Canada. <laughs> and, and just because that's the thought that came to my head while I'm writing about Quebec being separate province and Canada and they speak French. So I probably said something like about frogs or something because in my head, that's the only thing um, diminutive that I knew about the French, that they're frogs and they have baguettes and poodles and striped shirts and berets. And I probably put that in the middle and didn't go over well with the teacher. And I did that a lot with school assignments. I drop it in. Then after you get a girlfriend, I know I have a talent. I've been shy about using it. But if you get a girlfriend and you really care for her, <laughs> you want her to love you. You do the best thing creatively you can do. And with a lot of girls, it wasn't about boom, boom and, and the kissing. It was about how something went in their ear, or what they saw that you felt about them or made for them. And I wrote a lot of stuff to girlfriends from 16 right through. And, and friends, if I want to really, really do something nice for you and make you a birthday card and I work on it. I worked about 25 nights, stayed at work for my daughter's 18th birthday card. It's, I think, 65 pages, construction paper folded. And there's a joke or something on every line. I wrote, I wrote a poem to Allison. I wrote a story about a woman who was picking up our garbage and doing the wash and putting all the garbage in the, in the washing machine in our building. She turned into a giant and came after us. I, I was 43 at the time. I, I had no right to be writing this crap. And, and, and how many pages was this? 65. That, that's very sweet. At the same time, I'm wondering, did she need help lifting this to, to look at it? I think my daughter has always looked at me cautiously. Well, that's part of it. And thing that's coming out of his mouth, is it true or is he putting me on? You know, right up to, there's a fire, let's run out of here. <laughs> you know, really? <laughs> you know, she, she's got to feel heat, heat on her ass to, to get out of here. I guess she depends a lot on, on the look I give her. Look, when you, you're down, nothing protects you more than humor. It is the number one defensive mechanism if you're a humorous person, because it's a good way to take care of yourself when you're by yourself. I relate to that very definitely. And I think if you're wired a certain way, that becomes something of a default setting for you. And I think that folks who were raised by an alcoholic parent are more prone to having that as their default setting. Well, sure, because there's a lot of silence after there's fights. The parents aren't talking to each other. You still have the routine. You get up, breakfast, you leave, come back after school or for lunch in the summer. Then there's dinner, the shows you watch, the Bible, the TV guy coming out on Friday at Sloan's. It, you know, it was like Playboy coming out when I was 20. Um, it was just so important because I had to study each night how I was going to spend my time and what I was going to watch. Did, did you do the underlining thing? Mm hmm By the time my mother looked at the TV guide, she'd go, what the hell did you do to this? It would be mangled. It would be Friday night or Saturday. The TV guide you bought on Friday, I think, was Saturday to Sunday. So it was really tight to what was on the next night or, or, or the following night. 
So you, you're writing the novella for your daughter for her birthday. You're using this in messages to dear friends and family. And where does it leap from the homemade greeting card to a page or a stage? When you got messaging at work, which was probably around 85, 1985, at our job, I was with City Housing. I was in an affordable housing program. And you had friends. I mean, you had work friends. And mm-hmm. and you had work attraction friends. So they started becoming the targets for anything I would think up that I thought would entertain them because it certainly entertained me because I'm the first person that laughs at my crap. I'd really not get why that person didn't get it, <laughs> you know? And it took till I was 49 and done with taking care of my brother, my mother, my father, caretaking through years of primary caretaking. My grandmother dies last in 2003. And because I was taking care of people and all of them sometimes needing me at once, Tommy, I need this, Tommy, I need this. Now I'm in my 40s, I'm losing my whole 40s to primary caretaking. So I'm driving out to the island, going to Mercy Hospital, Amityville Hospital, uh, Mount Sinai for my grandmother, Doctor's Hospital on East 10th. And anytime anybody goes into the hospital and it's more than a couple of days, you got to do the wash for them because they only do the wash in the nursing homes. I didn't know that until I knew it. I was seeing a therapist already. And I had one day up at Mount Sinai in the atrium, like on 101st Street, where they all needed me at once. And I, I went to the railing with a purpose, and the purpose was I'm going over it, and in three, four seconds, this shit's done. It's done. And it was a couple of months before my grandmother died, and I didn't do it. I, I, saw, I saw my daughter's face. I, I just, I'm not going to do it. I feel like dying. I feel like, I feel like dying. It's the first and only time I really progressed to the point it was a better idea than not a good idea. Mm. You know, you go to bed, you say, I hope I don't wake up. This shit sucks. A lot of people do that. But a lot of people don't go to a railing that's 100 feet down into masonry or, or, or stone. My grandmother dies, and I, I say to the therapist, I don't think I want to be here. I, I don't have any purpose. I have no sense of purpose. And I avoid it because I don't want to think about it. But no matter how much I try, I can't. I know things I love, but I'm not good at them. I like to draw. I like to take photographs but I'm cheap and it costs a lot of money to get developed this is before digital. Therapist said, well, you like to write. All of a sudden my 15 watt bulb became a hundred watt bulb in my head. And I guess I set up straighter. And I go, well, what do you, what do you mean? Why don't you go to a workshop? I don't know where they are. And he says, that was like, cause on every light pole at that time in Manhattan, you'd see workshops and this. You didn't have to go online. And at 49, I got my first passport to go to a week-long writing 
workshop with a woman named Barbara Turner, free fall riding. I got a passport. Where do I go? I go to Vancouver and I go to a horse farm. And I walk in to the room and everybody else is there already. There's 13 women and one of them's Barbara and she's the only one smiling. And I could see that the others think I'm a misogynist and why is there a man here? So that afternoon we did a little writing. I wrote a one page story about my mother and I uh, singing Mary Olands a drink, drink, drink with her with the socks and that we knew all the words. 20 minutes, just write, see how you do. That's big with her, that you just write. Come with your computer or paper and pen and just write. So the next day, I write, my mother has a bizarre sense of humor. And the opening for the first story I ever wrote was when my parents got married and they were in Woodside before me, my father was coming home from work and my mother took the little American flag that was, I guess, on the fire escape or something and took the tip off that looked like a bullet. Then she went and got a bottle of ketchup and she was wearing just the house dress, moo-moo. She heard my father coming up and she laid on the floor, put ketchup on her chest with ketchup on the bullet right <laughs> next to her that went through her body, I guess she thought. My father had his version of what happened. My mother had her version and Chickie Murphy, the neighbor next door, my mother's best friend, had her version. So I told each of the versions. And this is the first story I wrote. That's the first story in my book. That got published on Mr. Bellers. And that was 2003. And then my first story published 2006. I was very hesitant on Mr. Bellers. And, and then in 08... In February, on the day the Giants won the Super Bowl, in the Sunday City section, I had an essay published, the headlock that won for the Giants, when I put Uncle Mommy in a headlock for good luck, and Gary Wood scored for the Giants. I still hear Marty Glickman in my head, and Mel Allen, and Jerry Coleman, and Marv Albert, and Bob Shepard. Bob Shepard visits me at least once a week. So, and it's so got to be in the dark. In the dark, it's just voices, Eric. That's, that, that's what I loved as a kid. You'd pull, they finally got an air conditioner for the bedroom. Rory and I would come in and pull our mattresses in from the bunk bed, and we'd put them over each other like a sandwich <laughs> because there wasn't enough room to lay them next to each other. And then we'd lie on the floor, and the lights would be out. They're in bed for 15, 20 minutes already. we come in. And I would start, ooh, you know, it, Rory, Rory, oh, where are you? And my mother would start, and my brother would start, and we'd start singing Roll Out the Barrels or any other song that came to mind. My mother bought me a pickle, and my father would go nuts. He would go nuts. Shut up! Or you're going back into your bedroom. Shut up! <laughs> and we knew how to calm him down, and the way to calm him down was sing. War tunes. Johnny comes marching home. Yankee Doodle Dandy. You know, give me a war. I had a song. And if we did that, it would be like we pulled the uh, wood out of the lion's foot. And he was your friend now. 
And then we'd start singing what we want, and it'd all start up again. But that storytelling, I needed the dark. I had to be somebody else, because I'm somebody else when I tell a story. And when the lights are on, it doesn't feel the same. I really loved Cornelia Street because I couldn't see anybody. I want to walk you back for a second because you, you started to say, you know, on, on the Super Bowl Sunday when you, that story, what, what happened with that story? Well, what happened with the story is they published five black and white photographs. Uh, who published it? New York Times. It was on the front page of the, of the city section throwing a plastic football that would kill you if it hit you in the chest when I was six years old, because I got the football in a football uniform for the Christmas present that year. It was a blind submission. I didn't know anybody. I heard an editor's And, and at that point, the only thing that you had had published was the uh, Mr. Bellows? The first thing I got paid for was my chicken flies, where a chicken hit a lady that I was trying to put on a spit. I was working in a, a, a butcher for a barbecue in the front window, and the guy always wanted me to put five chickens on, and I couldn't get that last chicken down with the nut to lock them in. And if I came out with four chickens, the guy would yell at me, the owner. So I was putting on the friggin' chicken, and the chicken went off the spit, and there was enough pressure that a woman was walking by in a cloth coat, and I whacked her, you know, on the side of her back. And she yelled out to the guy, uh, he just threw a chicken at me. I said, I didn't throw a chicken at you. The friggin' fathead in the front threw a chicken at you. I was so mad at him. I quit the next week. But that but so, th that I got really, paid for. And who paid you for it? I mean, where? Underground, where, underground magazine. So Mr. Bellard's Neighborhood is your first published story. This is the first one you got paid for. Right. And, and then, then, the, then uh, the New York Times happens? $1,000. They so, used to have four or five spots for, for, um, for freelancers. And I didn't even know what the hell a freelancer was at the time. <laughs> he called me at work. I thought it was one of my friends joking that he wanted a story. And he goes, hi, I'm Frank Flaherty of New York Times. I go, yeah, right, okay. So we finished the conversation. The guy calls me back. Now, I'm in a meeting in my office with five people that work for me. And I go back and I see all the zeros and I don't know what that means. And picks up and goes, you sent it in. John Odin's read your story. And I didn't know Frank Flaherty, but I knew I sent it to John Odin's. So I knew it was the Times. So I start jumping up and down in my what, office. What prompted you to send that to him? I sent that story to the Boston Globe the Arizona Constitution, L.A. Times, the Chicago's papers, all the lead papers in major cities. And I worked in 90 Church Street at that point, and there was a post office open 24 hours that you could put the mail in. So I was bringing all my mail down. I sent it hard copy and I sent it email just to make sure they looked at it. When Frank finally calmed me down, it was six days before the Super Bowl. I swear to God, it was like when in Wizard of Oz, when you go in and they get all prepped up and cleaned. And I, you know, I worked with the story editor, John. I worked with the style editor. I worked with the photo editor. And it was the best week of my life up to that point for I'm accomplishing something that mm. I love, that I love doing. I did it. I'm not sure where it all came from, 
And the thing that really took it over the top was the Giants won the Super Bowl on the day my story was on the front <laughs> cover of the city section of the Sunday Times that had at the time like two million plus hard copies. And it wasn't about money because God knows I didn't make a lot of money writing after that and there, you know, and now in April, he had told me next year, send in a story. Three months later, end of April, I send in the story, Boy in the Bullpen, about my, my uh, adventure in 1961, going to the guys to the bleachers. I was seven, so Ali says to me, he goes, partner, how old are you? And I said, seven. He goes, when you leave here, you'll be 21. And what he was referring to is you're going to hear some language in the bleachers at Yankee Stadium in July 61 with Whitey Ford pitching against Frank Larry. Where else would you want to be as a man with a beer in your hand in the bleachers at Yankee Stadium? And who's in front of you? Number seven, Mickey Mantle in center field. Close enough you could hit him with a, a Spalding. And they bought it. They had a rule about one story a year. My two first stories in the Times were all about if you've got an original story about something they haven't seen before and they can tie it into an event that's coming up, you've hit a writing home run because there's 15 other people. Half of them are better than you. Half of them are equal to you. You got the one on Super Bowl Sunday about the Giants who are in the Super Bowl. And now in April, you send this one about the Yankees and the Boston Red Sox. John Odens is a Boston fan, the story editor, and he's going to shelve the story until the Sunday Times, the last game ever between the Red Sox and the Yankees in old Yankee Stadium. And I'm thinking, this, this is how you... This is how you do it. You got to have something original. I sent a story to Bellers, uh, Herman the German, about my uh, patriotic German barber, haircuts, crew cuts, butch thick. I know the editor is a German major at NYU. So he takes that story, like two months after I just had a story in Bellers, because he likes Herman the German. And... I've been lucky a couple of other times, but not like the first two. The first two were home runs. They were kind of like getting in a bullpen at seven. You know, it's, I'm not going to say it's all downhill after that, but you, <laughs> you're not going to, you know, you're not going to have a two for Tuesday like that unless you really come up with something original, funny, or heartwarming, or a tragedy. I got a good friend. She wrote about a tragedy. She was in the same column where they, published my essay the following week. And she wrote about the loss of a very close relative and the plumbing in her apartment and that the super won't come. And she melded the whole thing together into a New York barefoot in the park tragedy type thing where it's all in the apartment. And we became friends, Merrill, and, and we went into a writing group together with another woman we met. That was wonderful, and I developed 
couple of other stories that got hard copy published. I first met you as a storyteller. How do you make the leap from what you're doing there? When, when did you branch into telling the stories before an audience? It was the writing group. The writing group were very seasoned. In fact, two of them were professional writers, and they, um, they found me at Hunter College. I was in a writing group, and a woman who was in there poached me to come to her writing group. I, I was with masters. I was with writers and TV executives, and I was so out of place, but I, I learned so much. You only get better when you play with somebody better than you. I was with a lot of people who wrote with intention and, and talent, and a couple of them were very critical, and I learned that that was as valuable as praise because I would step back and look at my work and see what they were seeing or not see it. They set up a event where we would each come and tell one of our stories. The first time I ever read a story in front of a group of a story I wrote, I, I, I read Boy in the Bullpen. And in the middle of it, I sang, Schaefer is the one beer to have when you're having more than one. And I sang the Rheingold song. <laughs> and the people sang along with me. These people in their 70s and 80s turned oh, into man, kids. Nice. I was so happy. I just, I, I, and that making people laugh, making elderly people laugh, reminded me so much of trying to cheer my grandmother up and make her laugh. Oh, she had no sense of humor, nice. but she was very funny and she didn't know it. And I could barely walk. I was so happy. Yeah. I remember that day so well couple people left work and came and there and I had a couple of friends. And that was the first time I ever read a story in front of anybody. So of course, that leads to, where would I do this elsewhere? Where would I do this elsewhere? Tim Mara, but he had a, a reading series once a month and I did his show a couple of times and I got about 60 people. So people were coming to hear me read, and I was getting a lot of encouragement to not read it, tell it. I was worried I was going to forget something. Or I couldn't pronounce the word I wrote, like Karome. <laughs> <laughs> so what eventually happened is I end up in Adam Wade's storytelling class. This is where it jumped from here to there. Barbara Alaprantis was very instrumental in helping me. Tommy, why don't you tell it instead of read it? This was at Cornelia Street where I was starting to be in other people's shows before they offered me my show. What Adam taught me in his class is what took me from there to here. Was his class specifically for uh, storytelling for performance? Yes. Okay. And the homework in the last class was an audience and telling the story that you developed in his class. Uh -huh. So we worked on one story for six weeks. The sixth week, we told it in front of an audience that we invited, each of us. There were six people in the class. So it was a lot of attention from Adam. And of course, 
you know Adam. He's yeah, no, he as good as they come. Yeah, and and as talented as anybody out there, and he's a good teacher. He said one on one with me. We were talking a lot. He said, Tommy, don't worry about what you forget. You got to nail your trans transitions. A story is as good as the front, the back, and the middle. And people don't know every sentence you wrote in that story. They're more interested in what you're saying is true and that you're telling it well and you're going to deliver. You're going to deliver something to them, whether it's happy or, or the other way around. And then I knew that it was storyboarding. So I would take 200 words times six, you know, 1,200 words and put them on five, three by five cards. This goes into that, this goes into that, this goes into that. So then it was like a memory palace that when I tell a story, if I say this line, this line comes next. Because mm -hmm. every scene happens in one location. So you, you took Adam's class and you started going out more often to uh, to tell stories live, correct? Correct. You gave uh, me, you gave you... me one of my first breaks to do that. Well, and I was reading when I first started at you because Gordon introduced you to me. Right, our good friend PR guy yes. Gordon. And when he did that, I think the embarrassment of being in shows with everybody else telling and me reading took me over the edge. It was kind of like an eighth grade dance where it, it's, the, it's the last song where finally you get the guts to walk across and ask a girl to dance with you. I've learned some of my best lessons by being ashamed. I'm built that way. I don't follow want the, to disappoint. Follow the fear. I don't want to disappoint her. It's either my grandmother or my mother or, or who, who I'm with. I don't want them to be ashamed of me. And I've, I've never lost that. And I'm 68, and I've never lost that. I want to please you. I want to have a good talk with you that has some substance about who you are and who I am. So I'm really glad we got together to do this. I, so, yeah, no, you, you did did great work at our show, and we were, we were very happy to have you back. I know that you then, uh, not long thereafter, begun your own show, hosting your own show at Cornelia Street Cafe. How did that come about? I did somebody's show because Tim Mara introduced me to Angelo Verga. Robin Hirsch was the owner, but I met Angelo first, and he was the booker for the poetry and storytelling. And I met Angelo on the phone, and we talked about the Yankees for 25 minutes. And I sent him Boy in the Bullpen, and he said, after the first time I, I, I was in somebody's show, how would you like to have your own show for a night? I said, I'd love it. And I did have a show, and I had about 75, 80 people come, and they were standing in the back by the bar. I was in heaven. I had one or two guests. And then um, Barbara had to take a break from every second Tuesday of the month 
and she gave it to me with an undetermined amount of time that she would be away. I started City Stories Stoops to Nuts. And because I had so many friends from Loser's Lounge, the recurring music show I went to at Joe's Pub, I started putting songwriters into my show who have narrative songs that go along and meld well with the storytelling. I thought that was, for me, perfect home. It really became a home. I mean, they treated me like gold. I was always on time. They gave me an art show. They did my photography. They got me on NBC and the New York Post, on New York, on New York One on TV, Spectrum, uh, Time Warner. And some of that, the NBC was, thank you, Gordon Balkan, <laughs> and also for turning me on to Lo Los Lobos. And that was it. It was five, it was five wonderful years. And I have to say, I went to that show on a number of occasions, and it was it was always a good time. This, the, the musician doing uh, story songs worked in perfectly. One other thing I have to ask you before we bid adieu for now, the book, how did this come about? I was doing Cornelia for about four years, and I was also working with a woman, Chris Beam, a wonderful writer, who has worked with and wrote about uh, transitional teenagers. Chris has excellent reviews in the New York Times about her books. She asked me at one time she was editing. I got uh, a heads up from Notori. Uh, friend Notori Thomas gave me a heads up. And I spoke to Chris. She gave me a nice break on hourly rate. And I went down to Lafayette Street right next to Joe's Pub. And I met with her once a week. And we'd go over stories and she would feed me Great feedback, because she taught masters at Columbia and NYU. I guess we were about five or six weeks into it, and she said, Tommy, when are you going to write a book? Yeah. And I go, what are you talking about? She goes, she's got 35, 40 stories. I said, well, I got about another 20 at home. She said, put them in cron order and see what you got. And when I was done doing what I was doing on my own, working towards a book that I didn't know what it was going to be and what it was going to be about outside of a memoir. And I wanted background because I wanted to talk about family all the way back. Frank Flaherty retired and I found out. And I wrote, hand wrote a three page letter to him. Frank, please be my editor for my book. And like the first two stories in the Times, the sun and the moon went like this. And I caught the man at the start of his retirement who had the time and we were friends to edit my book. And Frank, through notes, got, you know, Pete Hamill to look at it. Um, oh, and, and several, several good, uh, Robert Lipsight, who was the New York Mets beat writer for the New York Times uh, yeah, in 62, yeah. 63, and was a, a huge force at Sports Illustrated for years. Also, one of uh, Muhammad Ali's early and biggest writing supporters back all the way to Miami. I just met a lot of great people. Kevin Baker, a wonderful writer. He and I talked about the cemetery in Brooklyn and all of the Confederate and Union soldiers that are buried there. So 
I had the best year of my life. I, it was postpartum. <laughs> Doing the book with Frank was best year of my life. He said, Tommy, I want you to work harder. And I had all these stories done, and I really wasn't sure what he meant. But he was right. I just improved so many things about the stories with his suggestions and his edits. And we had a ball naming the stories and giving them names. And he even said to me, Tommy, you could have been a lead writer if you did this when you were younger. And that, that went all the way back to writing cards, that I would come up with the right thing to tease you into wanting to read what was below. And I still have it. And I started at 49. So I'm still a kid as far as I'm concerned. I've only been doing it 19 years. I really am rarely bored unless I sit and do nothing. And I'm probably thinking about writing while I'm sitting and doing nothing. <laughs> like John Hyatt said, I do some of my best thinking sitting on my ass. I, I understand and relate to all of that. Do you have anything on tap at the moment? Yes. I'm working on a story about my grandmother. And the story is a book. Behind us is 45 stories that my grandmother is the lead character. And many of them appeared parts of it in my memoir. But now she's, I'm bringing her in as a first person character sometime. Cause I want to know what was going on in my grandmother's head when she had a 16 year old and 11 year old sons and a husband who she was taking care of for 10 years with POTS disease and leukemia, uh, tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know what was going on in my grandmother's head when he committed suicide. And now she has these two sons. Oh, man. And she That's turned into a terrific politician. And she was an elected official for 40 years. And she was the first lady of Yorkville. And that's what it is. It's about my grandmother, but I'm going to take some, some literary license to ask her questions that she asked herself and, and see what she was thinking about all the way through to me taking care of her in Jewish home. Man, I, I got to tell you, I can't wait to see the finished product or hopefully because I'm your pal, I may get to hear snippets of it along the way. Thank you for, for your time, for hanging out with us, Tommy. I, I always enjoy spending time with you. The book, you can still get the book, I Hate the Dallas Cowboys by Thomas Pryor. If people want to seek out more information about you, where can they go? Um, they go to Yorkville Stoops to Nuts. Yorkville Stoops to Nuts is my blog. I've got a couple of maybe 1,000, 1,200 photographs that I've taken in, and also black and old black and whites about stories I've written. It's online, Yorkville Stoops and Nuts, and there's also information for me on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And uh, hard copy, you can get it right here on York Avenue at Logos Bookstore between 83rd and 84th Street. It's there. Oh, man, this is wonderful. Uh, keep doing your good work, and, and thank you for your time, my friend. Thank you, Eric. It was a pleasure. All right. Well, we had a great time talking with Tommy Pryor, and I, I hope you enjoyed listening to us rattle on about memories in New York and writing and all sorts of stuff like that. Be sure to check out his book, I hate the Dallas Cowboys, and my understanding, 
is that our very own producer, Gary Hardcastle, uh, may be producing an audio book of the same wonderful tome. So we'll keep you posted on that in future episodes. If there's something to tell, we'll tell it. But for right now, something to look forward to. Uh, Speaking of something else to look forward to, don't tell anyone. After we end the episode, we're not really ending the episode just yet. We don't want to say goodbye, so we got a little bonus content after we say our official goodbye. So uh, stick around. In any event, until the next episode, until we meet again in person or virtually, take care of yourselves. Thank you for spending some time with us. My name is Eric Vetter. This is the No Name NYC podcast. I love you all. All right, well, if you've stuck around, once again, you've been rewarded, that doesn't have to be in quotation marks, by some bonus content, the No Name NYC podcast bonus content. Today, we're going back to, well, in one of our previous episodes, I think it was the Alex D'Souza episode, we shared a song from a former member of our house band, The Summer Replacements, a gentleman named Jordan Oakland. He is a wonderful singer-songwriter who's currently living, I believe, in France and, and touring all over the world with a band. But he always does great work. You can find his work online, any place that, that carries music, you know, Bandcamp, Spotify. I mean, I don't know. I don't know all the platforms, but there's a lot of platforms. Google him. That's Jordan Okrend. The last name is O-K-R-E-N-D. We're sharing a song of his. The song we're sharing, you should go to YouTube when he was living in New York he shot a really cool video for the song. The song is called Go My Way, and it's Jordan Oakland. So sit back, relax, enjoy, and... Oh, wait. No, I think I've misled you. Because we are going to the bonus content. It is there if you just hang in just a little longer, just, just a few more seconds, because we want you to know that our bonus content is sponsored by the wonderful Word Up Community Bookshop. Word Up Community Bookshop, located at 2113 Amsterdam Avenue. That's the corner of 165th Street and Amsterdam Avenue in Washington Heights. This is a wonderful place. It's a community-based place, and it is the bookshop with a little something extra. Uh, They have a great selection of new and used books, uh, not only in English, but in Spanish and many other languages as well. They also have merchandise from notebooks to T-shirts to tote bags to games, uh, all sorts of cool stuff there. It is largely volunteer staffed, and uh, they also have programs for young people. Uh, There are artist events, uh, author events. There are writing workshops, so please check them out. Lots of good stuff there. They also have an online bookshop. Do check them up, out at wordupbooks.com and uh, support independent bookshops. That's always a good thing. So whenever you're in Washington Heights, uptown New York City, be sure to drop into Word Up Community Bookshop. Some talk of destruction 
Well, that was a Jordan Oakland's Go My Way song that I've actually covered once or twice. There's no footage of this anywhere, so you'll just have to take my word for it, but I made sure there was no evidence. But you got to hear the genuine item. You got to hear Jordan sing that, and we hope you enjoyed that. And if you're anywhere in the world where Jordan is performing, definitely check him out. He's also a wonderful live performer. So that's it for now, I guess. We are figuring to be back with some new episodes on September 1st. We got some really exciting things lined up. And so, as as always, thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for coming to the podcast in the first place. Thank you for sticking around for the bonus content. My name is Eric Vetter. Take care.